0: Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your word would fill us up. I pray that you'd illuminate our understanding. You'd help us to see the amazing love of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd help us to see that we have been saved by a very gracious, kind, loving, and powerful God. I ask, Lord, that you would give me a portion of your spirit this morning to be able to unleash the truth of your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are in the book of Mark, in chapter 5. We'll be finishing Mark chapter 5 today. It's a bit of a, a longer passage. It's quite a few verses, but it's all one story. And so we'll go through it, the whole thing, starting in Mark 5, verse 21, and we'll read right to the end of the chapter, and then next week we'll get into Mark chapter 6. We have studied the last, well, two weeks ago, we studied uh, Jesus healing the demon-possessed man of Gadara, a man who was possessed by a legion of demons, He lived among the tombs, and he would cut himself with stones. Very, very troubled man who came, and at the moment that he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him not to destroy him. Jesus cast out those demons because Jesus is a powerful, supremely powerful God. The week before that, we saw Jesus calm a storm. So Jesus get into a boat with his disciples and they were on the sea and a a hurricane came up and with one word, Jesus stood up and calmed the storm because our God is a powerful and amazing God. The next two miracles also display the power of God, but a more overt display of Jesus's character in this passage is his love. Jesus' amazing compassion. He heals a woman who was the, the bottom of society. And he raises a young girl who is at the top of society. Because Jesus makes no distinction. Mark 5, starting in verse 21. Let's read it together. Please stand in reverence to the word of God. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came one from the ruler's house, Uh, Someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So Jesus has just spent quite a long time doing a lot of teaching and healing in Capernaum. He gets into a boat after a very long day of teaching, of standing against uh, Jewish religious leaders. He gets into a boat, starts heading to the other side. There's a hurricane. He stops it. He gets to the other side of the sea. As soon as he gets out, uh, a man with a legion of demons, naked and bloody, runs at him and... Gets the And he casts the demons out. Then he gets back into the boat and goes back over to Capernaum where everybody was kind of mad at him. Where all the Jewish leaders were mad at him. And as soon as he got to the other side, a crowd gathered about him. Not a lot of breaks for Jesus in this, in this section. And he was increasingly become famous. We see both uh, the, this man named Jairus and uh, the woman with the issue of blood. They had heard about Jesus and they decided that they would try him uh, to, to heal their, their problem. The ruler of the synagogue, uh, Jairus, uh, these guys, the, the guys who ruled the synagogues, they were extremely wealthy men. Um, they carried a lot of honor. It was a big deal to be a ruler of the synagogue. These guys would have been high-class dudes. High-class dudes, sorry. I'll stop talking like a bohemian. The guy was an elite Uh, He would never have associated with those of a lower station than himself. There was kind of uh, the social structure in Israel was kind of like the religious leaders and and the guys who were with them were kind of a whole separate class of people. And everybody else was kind of like second class citizens and compared to their amazing holiness. They were the guys. They were amazing. And they didn't really there wasn't a whole lot of blending uh, with this. Uh, His job in the synagogue would have been finding teachers, making sure that they were teaching the the Old Testament scriptures correctly. Uh, they would have been uh, kind of regulating the service, kind of like the service leader. So kind of like Lance sometimes. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, these guys were, um, they took their jobs very seriously. And so Jesus, when he has... Um, conflicts, as we saw a while ago in the book of Mark, uh, especially in Mark chapter uh, two and three, we see Jesus having conflicts with the religious leaders, Jairus would have been their friend. He would have been a part of that posse. Maybe he wouldn't have been accusing Jesus quite like the other guys were because he wouldn't have been a teacher. He was just kind of like a ruler of the synagogue. But these were his friends. His friends were the ones who were standing against Jesus, making accusations against Jesus. And so for him to come to Jesus in this way, in a very public place in front of people of lower status, to ask Jesus for help, that was... It was he was kind of abandoning his social status for for a moment. This is an act of desperation, out of love for his daughter, and and like I say, it would have been very socially damaging for him. His friends and and uh, colleagues would have all been uh, sitting around at dinner parties, laughing about the ridiculous man Jesus, or worse, they would have been figuring out ways to stop Jesus and to destroy Jesus, and he would have been in on those conversations. He abandons those people and instead he goes to Jesus because he understands that Jesus is the only person who can truly help him. There, At this point, his daughter is dying and it really doesn't matter now what the social uh, issues are going to be. He's just got to save his kid. And I think we can we can kind of understand this, right? No social status, no nothing will be enough to ever stop us from going and helping our children. But this man uh, would have been defying a lot of cultural uh, taboos to go and, a- and to ask Jesus for help. To seek him out and to ask him would have been uh, quite terrible. And Jesus, you know, I, I love Jesus in this section because this man who was part of the, the people who were making accusations against him and standing against him, this man comes to Jesus and said, please help me. My daughter's dying. And Jesus says, okay. Jesus doesn't care. All of these, uh, these people who have been making accusations against him, it really doesn't matter. At this point, what's more important? Healing this man's daughter. And so as Jesus and Jairus are on their way to find Jairus' daughter, the crowd was pressing around them, making it very, very slow going. Imagine Jairus in this situation that Jesus, he's got Jesus. He's finally asked Jesus to come and help his daughter. It's very time-sensitive, but the crowd just will not get out of his way. This would have been an agonizing walk. They would have been by the sea and trying to get into the city, and then once you get into the city, it becomes even tighter of a space, and the crowd would just get bigger. And Jairus must have had... Yeah must have been very frustrating for Jairus, is all I can say. In the crowd, there's a woman with a discharge of blood, which essentially means that she was on her menstrual cycle all the time, 24-7, 12 years long. Uh, this issue was uh, huh, not, not something that she would have been able to cover up. We don't really get the implications of what this woman would have gone through. Uh, if this was happening to someone today in our culture, it would have been very uh, painful, would have been inconvenient, but it's ultimately it's something that could have been hidden, right? Um, if this were, were an issue for somebody, uh, even in our church, we wouldn't all have to know about it, right? That person could keep that uh, as a private thing. Uh, in in this woman's culture, the the place that she lived, there was no way. That that could happen. So turn to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 15. This will give us a little bit of understanding as to where what this woman was going through, what her life was like. Leviticus 15. Uh, we're gonna start in verse 19. So when when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They each received curses that were particular to their sex. Uh, For the man, it was uh, having to toil, and his work was cursed, and there was nothing that he could do about it. For women, the curse for their sin was that childbearing would be painful. This is not exclusive to the act of giving birth, but the curse also affects a woman's reproductive organs, uh, even when she's not pregnant. Uh, The pain of menstruation is all a part of the curse, which is caused by sin. That's why when a woman was on her cycle, the book of Leviticus would classify her as being ceremonially unclean, because right at that point, she is representing in her own body the effects of the curse of the fall uh, of man. So let's, I'm just going to read Leviticus 12, sorry, Leviticus 15, starting in verse 19. When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits when he touches it it shall he shall be unclean until evening and if any man lies with her in her menstrual impurity uh sorry if anyone lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him he shall be unclean for 7 days and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days not at the same time as her menstrual impurity or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity all the days of her discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As for the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and shall be unclean until evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall be She shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day, she shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, and bring them to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And on it goes. Crazy implications for this woman. For twelve years, she wasn't allowed to touch someone without them becoming ceremonially unclean. She was not allowed to sit or to lie down on anything without making it unclean. Her husband and her children would not have been able to touch her or the things that she sat on without becoming unclean themselves. She was not allowed to participate in worship at the synagogue or at the temple. Everyone would know that she had this problem. She wouldn't be able to sleep in the same bed as her husband. She wouldn't be able to sit on the same chairs as her children for 12 years. 12 years of that. This would have been a very humiliating and public problem. She would never have been able to go and participate in sacrifices at the temple that the, that the Old Testament scriptures commanded. And, and everybody would have kind of known, like, oh, why doesn't she come? Well, she's, you know, been in her impurity for 12 years. Would have been probably a well-known woman. She tried to fix her problems with doctors. In so doing, she'd only gotten worse. As a result, she was impoverished, she was desperate. And by entering the crowd, she was actually making people unclean just by pushing through the crowd. She was actually breaking the law by doing that. But she didn't care anymore. All she wanted was to be made well. The Jews had been commanded in Numbers 15 to sew tassels onto the edges of their garments as a reminder that they belonged to God. And every time they would look at their tassels, they would be reminded of God's faithfulness to them and of his salvation in bringing them out of Egypt. Jesus obeyed this law as he obeyed all the other laws and wore tassels on the trim of his garment. The woman came up behind him and touched one of those tassels on his on his garment, and she was healed. Jesus feels... Uh, you can turn back to the book of Mark now. I think we're done in Leviticus. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> Yeah. Jesus turns around and calls out the woman, trying to figure out who this is. It's kind of an interesting thing. We're not sure if Jesus was um, actually trying to, like, if Jesus actually didn't know who this woman was. It seems likely that Jesus, being the all knowing God, did know who it was and wanted to call her out, bring her forward, and use her as an example. For the crowd, but it kind of the way that he says it, you know, who touched me? And he's looking around. And so, you know, when Jesus came to earth, he set aside uh, some of the uh, overt attributes of his godhood, right? So he set aside his omnipresence in the sense that he got a body and he was there. So maybe his mind was all present, but his body was not. So it's it's really hard to to describe exactly how uh, Jesus be is both fully God and fully man because some of those attributes just don't mix, right? We are stationary people. We have brains that are limited. You know, God does not have a brain. He is unlimited in his knowledge and in his capacity for for knowledge. But so we don't know exactly if Jesus didn't truly didn't know. Or if this was something that he was trying to do, he was trying to bring this woman forward so that he could use her uh, to show everybody uh, the power of God and his love. I don't know. Uh, And I read a lot of commentaries and none of them know either. So I guess we're just going to have to be content with not knowing. Yeah, Jesus calls out this woman. And he says uh, an interesting thing to her. She comes before him. She falls down in fear and trembling, likely because she thinks that he's going to be upset with her. But she falls down in fear and trembling, and she recounts what she did and what happened. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, I don't like to talk about the Greek very much. But one thing that I thought was very interesting that our English translations don't do very well is that when Jesus says the words, made you well, your faith has made you well, he uses the same kind of word that is used in other places in the Bible for saved. Your faith has saved you. In this sense, in this particular portion, it means her faith has been something that has Uh, saved her physically and has saved her spiritually. And And then he says, go in peace and be healed of your disease. So in a sense, it's like two things. He's saying, your faith has saved you, go and be healed. Her faith in Christ, her faith that Jesus was who he said he was, was a saving faith that made her well, and she was able to go and be healed of her disease. The word there is sozo, if you're curious. Jesus calls her out so that, she, so that he can tell her that not only has she been healed, but that her genuine faith in him, which propelled her to action, was a saving faith. Interestingly, this is not always the case with healings. Uh, the faith it takes to come for healing is not always characterized in the same way. It's not always saving faith. But in this particular case, it was. And we've seen a similar thing in Mark chapter 2 where the paralyzed man gets laid down in front of Jesus and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's sort of... Sometimes with these people who come forward for healing, they are coming forward for a more spiritual and full healing. And sometimes it's just people looking for a a solution to their physical problems. While Jesus is talking to this woman, Jairus finds out that his daughter has passed away. And they say, why bother the teacher anymore? The assumption being that, Jesus probably could have healed her uh, if she was only sick, but now that she's dead, not even Jesus would be able to take care of her. But Jesus turns to him and he says, Do not fear, only believe. And so they turn and they continue on. They go into the house. When they get there, the funeral has already started with professional mourners. Uh, Back in uh, ancient times, there were people who uh, would come out and they would be paid to cry for the dead and to wail. It was believed that the louder the wails were, the louder the crying was, the more important the person was. And so these people would come and they would hire themselves out so that the family would feel like their person was, was more important. Um, Jesus sends them away. And we know that these people weren't uh, very uh, serious about their mourning because when Jesus says the child is not dead but sleeping, they laugh at him. So they go from crying to laughing way too quickly to be able to uh, believe that they were actually genuinely sad about this girl dying. Interestingly, Jesus says the girl is not dead, but sleeping is the same language that he uses in John 13 when he tells his disciple that Lazarus had died. Uh, Jesus is demonstrating that for him, it's as easy as waking somebody up. So he goes in, he says to her, little girl, get up. And she rises from the dead, and he tells everybody to keep it, keep it a secret. Uh, it's a miracle that people won't be able to fully comprehend and appreciate until Jesus himself rises from the dead. There's a few things that I just want to leave with you before, uh, we cl- before I close. The first is this miracle, these two miracles, really demonstrate Jesus' sovereign power. He is so powerfully able to heal that the woman didn't even have to ask. All she had to do was touch the fringe of his garment. The book of Malachi talks about this, that the son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. And that people will be able to just touch the fringes of his wings, his garments. the, The tassels on the ends of the cloak are actually called wings in some instances. And that Jesus would be able to heal people just by a touch. Just by a faith. I also want you to note that he can actually raise people from the dead. Which we tend, I I talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago. We tend to read these stories and say, oh yeah, he raised a little girl from the dead. But like, come on, he raised a girl from the dead. That's amazing. I don't care who you are. That's impressive. People don't do that. People don't just get up. Nobody, you know, even doctors who resuscitate people have to, like, do the the pumping and the breaths and all of that. Nobody can say, you know, get up. And the person actually does it. But Jesus is so powerful. Jesus is so amazingly strong that all he has to do is say, Talitha Kumi. And the little girl gets up and starts walking around. It's not even just, like, that she starts breathing again. She gets up. She's walking around. She's conscious. She knows what's going on. That is Absolutely incredible. Don't read these stories and just kind of say, oh yeah, that's uh, Jesus did that. It's like, that's, that's actually really impressive. That's actually amazing. Your God is so amazing that he can actually raise people from the dead. He was able to raise himself from the dead. You can't raise yourself from the dead, but he could. That is incredible. Good. I also want to leave you with this one. Jesus is a compassionate and loving Savior. Jairus was part of the crowd that was standing against Jesus, but Jesus was very happy and willing to go with him and to help him when his daughter was dying. He was willing to stop everything to let this woman know that she was saved. He stopped the whole crowd. He stopped Jairus. He stopped his disciples. He stopped everything and turned around to find this woman so that he could tell her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He was willing to help both a poor woman and a rich man. Jairus and the woman were absolutely complete opposites. Jairus was rich and she was poor. He was a religious leader. She wasn't allowed to participate in religion at all. He had a high social status and she was a nobody. But Jesus doesn't care. Jesus saves people from every tribe and language and people and nation and tongue. It makes no difference to Jesus. Your, however much money you have or don't have, however strong or weak you are, However many friends you have or don't, it doesn't matter because Jesus saves based on his love and his compassion, not based on anything in the person that he is saving. The woman was saved through her faith in Christ. She believed that Christ was more than a man, that he was the Messiah. She threw all her chips into the one basket because she knew that Jesus was her only hope. And when we realize that Jesus is our only hope, that is a sign that his spirit is working in us, that his spirit has given us a new heart, a soft heart that is ready to receive. If you believe that you're saved because of something that you did or something that you said or something that you prayed, that little prayer that you prayed when you were five, you're trusting in something other than Christ. You need to trust in Christ. You need to trust in him alone. Christ is impartial. The gifts he gives are not exclusive to people of a certain social status or political opinion. Salvation is only for those who believe. And it's for those who believe regardless of where they've come from. Your circumstances have no bearing on your salvation. Your experiences have no effect on whether or not the Bible is true. There is only one truth. And the truth is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He lived a perfect life on their behalf. He died the death they deserved to die, and he rose three days later, conquering death once and for all. The miracle that he displayed in this section is merely a foreshadowing of the more amazing spiritual resurrection that we will receive in Christ. It is a sign of the victory that Jesus would have in his own death and resurrection, and in the resurrection that he would give to us who... Trust in him by faith. You may be a prostitute or a pastor, but each one of us is getting saved the same way, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So if you or someone that you know is relying on something other than the power and compassion and love of Christ, that person has abandoned the faith. Salvation for the powerful synagogue ruler Jairus was the same as it was for the nameless woman who suffered for 12 long years. This is the question that I'm leaving you with Are you trusting in anything other than the power of Christ? Or to put it another way, are you trusting in your own good works? Are you trusting in a prayer you prayed? Nothing but the power of Christ working in your heart through the Holy Spirit will ever be enough to save you and bring you into a right relationship with God. Christ is such a loving God that he overlooks your sin. He overlooks your social status. He overlooks all the reasons why you don't belong in the kingdom. And he makes you new and makes it so that you do belong in his kingdom by the power of his spirit. The Apostle Paul says it best in... 1 Corinthians six nine to eleven. 1 Corinthians six Where he says, Do you know do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Did you uh, find yourself on that list? Because I did. That's what you and I were. But Jesus washes us in his blood, and he rescues us from the old person that we were, and he makes us new. By the power of his spirit. I hope that this is true for all of us today. I truly do. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would give us the faith of the woman with the issue of blood who thought, even if I just touch the edge of his garments, I will be saved. What amazing faith! Father, I pray that the words that Jesus spoke to her, you know, your faith has saved you. I pray that that phrase would be said to all of us one day. Father, I pray that if any of us, me included, are trusting in our own works, our own righteousness, our own social status, or anything other than Christ, That you would change us, that you would convict us of that sin, you'd help us to repent and give us the ability to trust you more. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.